Today's reading is uh, Daniel 5, and you'll find it in the uh, overhead or in your church leaflets. Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of your gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and understanding, and wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendour. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. 
Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from the royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you know all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord in heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, pasin. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar commanded Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylons, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again. Uh, Ingrid and I had a wonderful six weeks in uh, in the US, visiting our son and uh, his wife and two grandchildren, Max five and Will three and a half. And it was really good to be there and connect with them again over these six weeks and get to know them and they get to know us and also to speak faith into their lives as grandparents want to do, aren't they? Um, uh, since our trip back was quite gruelling, uh, it took two days, 45 hours in fact, in transit we were because of cancellations and delayed flights. And at the end of, the all, at the end of it all, we also caught COVID. So uh, join the club. <laughs> um, but we've recovered well. It was only a mild symptoms and so on. And we've uh, tested negative. So it's good to be back with you again. And also, especially to support the church and Scott as he continues to recover. So lovely to be here. Let's just pray before we uh, open God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Your word is truth, is powerful to, to change our lives and change our hearts and to help us to see who you really are and especially who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might understand your word and seek to live by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back in the book of Daniel and uh, it's been teaching us as uh, it's been teaching us uh, what, how we as Christians can live in a society that actually rejects the living God of the Bible and actually wants to shut him out of our world. 
And this is the situation that Daniel and the exiles faced. They had been conquered and deported from Jerusalem, taken into exile, and were living in a pagan, pluralistic city of Babylon. And they're living in the tension of that, aren't they? How will we maintain our integrity? That's the question that we're faced with every day. And live out our faith as the people of God in a society that has many gods. Babylon was a pluralistic society. How can we be a witness in a world that actually despises God and his word? Over the last 200 years or so, we've seen a lot of changes in our Western culture, haven't we? Many, many changes. But there's one really big change that we rarely think about, and that's happened quite sort of subtly and slowly and mostly unnoticed. And that change is this. People no longer fear God. They no longer fear standing before God. Sure, people fear many, many things in our culture. They fear of heights, fear of spiders, fear of cancer. Most people certainly fear death, don't they? Or probably more accurately, the process of dying. As Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. The thing is, we fear the painful process of death, but not what's on the other side of dying. We no longer fear meeting our maker, do we? Most people in our culture still say they believe in God, but not in a God we should fear. We believe in a God who exists to help us with our plans and purposes. A God who is sympathetic to us as essentially good people trying to do our best. And you see that attitude often in, in funerals, don't you? People with absolutely no evident Christian commitment are eulogised as loving, kind and caring and everyone there can take comfort that they're in heaven enjoying their favourite meal, uh, fishing in a well-stocked pond uh, or uh, cheering on their beloved team. We no longer fear to stand before God. And yet for most of Christian history, this has not been so. People feared the judgment to come. When Jonathan Edwards, some hundred, couple of hundred years ago, preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he painted this vivid picture of sinners dangling over the pit of hell with, with barely a spider's web, thread holding them up. It was reported that people were so frightened that uh, they lifted their feet off the floor. Today, people would reject that sort of preaching, wouldn't they? They would reject it as being fire and brimstone preaching and even consider it perhaps verbally abusive. And yet the Bible tells us quite clearly, Hebrews 9.27, that we're all destined to die and after that to face the judgment, aren't we? Do you believe that? Does that motivate and shape your life? Does that motivate and shape the life of our church? Do you really believe that when we die, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be weighed in the scales of God's justice? We see it vividly portrayed here in Daniel 5, don't we? Years have passed since the events of chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar's reign ended in 562 BC. And now it's 22 years later, 540 BC, and Daniel is an old man in his 80s. King Belshazzar is on the throne in Babylon, and he's actually a co-regent. 
uh, under King Nabonidus, who was off waging a war somewhere in the other part of the empire. And so Belshazzar, his nominated successor, was left in charge of Babylon in 539 BC. So let's have a look at the story. Firstly, we see a classic example of the famous saying, eat, drink, and be merry. Here we see King Belshazzar in Babylon, and the king parties, doesn't he? The king really parties here. Look at verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Notice in verse 2, the party is not just for the king and his nobles, but his wives and concubines are there as well. This was very unusual. Wives sometimes attended, but to have your concubines with your nobles, this was actually a wildly sensual party. Why such a wild party? Well, historians tell us that in 539 BC, there was a huge shadow hanging over the Babylonian Empire and its capital city. Only a week earlier, a man named Cyrus the Persian had had brought the Medo-Persian army down and had decisively defeated the Babylonians less than 100 kilometres from Babylon itself. Babylon was now completely defenceless. The Medes and the Persians were coming, and it's only a matter of time. And so the king parties. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's a very contemporary response, isn't it? Isn't that so much of the focus of our culture? People without God and without hope in the world cope with their sense of emptiness and the awareness that their lives are ultimately insignificant by pursuing pleasure, shopping, you name it. But it's actually more than that for Belshazzar. Look at the king's arrogant defiance in verse 2. He gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, might drink from them. Earlier, years earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar had sacked Jerusalem and the temple and had taken the sacred gold and silver utensils used by the priests to perform their duties, uh, bringing them back to Babylon. But what Belshazzar does here is actually not Babylonian policy. You don't keep conquered peoples in line by thumbing your nose at their gods. Besides, they were polytheists. They were quite happy to add the god of Jerusalem on this, onto their side along with all the other gods. And so this was not like the Babylonians at all to deliberately anger conquered peoples by desecrating their holy things. But here's Belshazzar, deliberately defiant, showing contempt for the things of God and therefore contempt for God himself. Look at verse 4. As they ate, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. He's deliberately mocking the living God, isn't he? using the temple goblets to praise his idols. But little did Belshazzar know that while Jerusalem may have been conquered, the God of Jerusalem was not a conquered God at all. People often misunderstand this, don't they? They, uh, When God's people are punished and sent into exile for their sin, or when the church is weak and ineffective and Jesus removes his spirit from them, it doesn't mean that God is a light and airy thing to be trifled with. It's quite the contrary, isn't it? Sure, the, the faults of Christians and the faults of the church are many, 
But it's not the same as saying that God has failed. So let's think about this for a moment. What is your attitude towards God? Do you fear him? How do I know if I do? Well, your life will show it, won't it? Belshazzar's did, didn't it? In Luke 12, Jesus tells a powerful story of the rich fool. He had more wealth than he needed, so he built himself those bigger barns and said to himself, I've got enough to keep me going for years. I can eat and drink and be merry. I can relax. I can go on my trips. I can enjoy myself. I'm all set up. It's a very modern attitude, isn't it? But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is required of you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus gives this obvious observation, conclusion. This is how it will be, says Jesus, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Are you rich towards God? Is the orientation of your life upwards towards God or downwards towards the things of this world? John Bunyan illustrates this in his uh, famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. The interpreter takes a pilgrim into a room and shows him a man who only ever looks down. He has a muckrake in his hands. He's collecting small sticks and straws. At the same time, a celestial crown is being held up and offered to him instead of the muckrake. But he never sees it because he's always looking down. Like many in our world, he thought heaven was a fable and only wanted the treasures of the world. And the interpreter tells Pilgrim how easily earthly things take us away from God. And the Pilgrim replies, deliver me from this muckrake. What's your attitude towards God? What's your attitude towards the living God? Look at your life. What are you living for? Is your life God-honouring? It brings me to the second thing we see here. The moment reality crashes in. How quickly things change for this man, Belshazzar. A moment ago, he's full of confidence eating and drinking with his nobles and concubines, but now the king trembles. Look at verse 5 and 6. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. If God writes something, we better pay attention, hadn't we? Look at Belshazzar now. His colours change, his head's filled with dread, his arms and legs fail him. He's probably wetting himself. He's a terrified little king. What do we do when we're scared? Well, you turn to your religion, don't you? What, that's what the king does. Look at verse 7. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. You know, when tragedy strikes, we're in a time of crisis, when fear consumes us, we tend to turn towards to our religion, don't we? And of course, as Christians, we pray, and that's right. But for too many people, they're thinking, do I have enough money to cover this? 
Do I have the right insurance? What can the doctors or the psychologist do for me? What can science do? And of course God uses science and money and doctors and all the rest, but where's your ultimate hope? Where is your ultimate hope? For Belshazzar, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, fear, tragedy, crisis meant call for the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners, the class of elite, priestly, wise men. That's his religion. That's his faith. But as we've seen time and time again in the book of Daniel, no one can help the king. Religion will always let you down. Look at verse 8 and 9. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Turns out the so-called enlightened class were not all that enlightened, were they? Sometimes our elites are not all that elite. But once again, Belshazzar, Belshazzar's religion lets him down. You can count on it. The idols we set up in our, on our, in our lives, and Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols, the idols we set up in our lives, the things we tend to look on to in this world for meaning, for hope, for salvation will always let us down. Football will not save you. Academics will not save you. Shopping won't save you. Science won't save you. Your reputation won't save you. Money won't save you. False gods will always fail. The French atheist Voltaire the, was an intelligent man and a wealthy man who rejected God and ridiculed Christianity. And yet when he came to die, he said to his doctor, I will give you half of all I possess if you could just give me six months more of life. Sounds like Belshazzar, doesn't it? But of course, the doctor and his money couldn't do anything. His wealth was unable to save him. And he died full of bitter despair. The idols we set up will always let us down. And thirdly, here in the story, we're told that judgment is coming. The queen comes into the banqueting hall, reminds the king of Daniel and his insight and wisdom and his ability to solve difficult problems. And so the king calls Daniel and Daniel agrees to tell the king what the writing on the wall means. But first he points out, doesn't he? he, he he's quite uh, polite but bold points out the king's failure to listen to God's word. Look at verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. A little further on, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped from his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. A little further, until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and you did not honour the God who holds his hand in his hand your life and your ways. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson. I may be a great king, but there is one who is in charge of me, the Most High God. He's great, and I'm not. He is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson of humility before God. 
And in verse 22, we see that Daniel presses home the point. You, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You heard of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. You knew the lesson of humility, but you refused to learn it for yourself. What a tragedy. And you know, it'd be an even greater tragedy for people to grow up in the church, to hear the word of God week by week, to sing songs of praise to Jesus, to meet around God's word in small groups, and to still have hard hearts and refuse to learn the lesson of humility before God. You knew the lesson of humility. You heard it in sermons and in Bible studies. It was there in the prayers and songs. You knew it, but you're resisting it. What a tragedy. And verse 23 is just as tragic. You did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and your ways. Wouldn't our attitude to prayer, worship, be different if we can simply remember and hold this truth in our minds all the time? God holds your life and my life in his hands. He numbers our days. Every breath we breathe is a gift given by him. Belshazzar never learned this. Daniel reminds him, the God you reject and mock is the God who holds your life in his hands. So finally, Daniel comes to the interpretation, which reminds us of the sobering truth that God actually judges. Look at verse 26. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age 62. In other words, Belshazzar, this is God's judgment on you. Today is a day of reckoning. The writing is on the wall. Your kingdom is finished. You are light on God's scales. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Persians. And on that very night of celebration and partying, Belshazzar lost his empire and he lost his life. One ancient Greek historian writes, the city of Babylon was taken at night during a festival and the king was slain. He didn't see the precarious position he was in. And when Daniel pointed it out, he did nothing about it. And judgment is coming for all of us, you know. For Belshazzar, it came sooner than he thought. And we need to learn from this because we live in momentous times. Do you realize that? God has sent his son Jesus into the world, he set up his kingdom on earth. The gospel, the good news is being preached everywhere. But many people live as if God doesn't exist. They live like the man with the muckrake, head down, pursuing sticks and straws, wealth, pleasure, sex, apathetic and indifferent to God, no longer fearing the God who gives them life. And this passage is a warning to all of us that God judges and will call everyone to account. Our days are numbered. Our opportunities are numbered. And if you haven't done so yet, now is the time to turn to God through Christ. We will be weighed. Our attitudes, our words, our actions will be weighed. Are you confident to stand before God? Are you confident to stand before God and to be weighed on the scales of divine justice? 
Now, we know from the rest of the Bible that to be weighed on the scales is not a matter of putting your good deeds on one side of the scale and your bad deeds on the other side of the scale, and provided your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, God will accept you. That's not how it works at all. If that were the case, we'd all be found wanting. God doesn't add up your good deeds to see if you've done enough. No, he simply looks for genuine faith. Do you believe God as Nebuchadnezzar did? Remember what he said? Listen to chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and all those who walk in pride he is able to humble. A lifetime of rebellion ended in a moment because he humbled himself and believed the God of heaven. But Belshazzar remained defiant and even when he was warned, he refused to humble himself. And he was weighed on the scales and found wanting. What about you? You've heard God's word to you. Don't be hard-hearted like Belshazzar. Don't be like the rich fool in Jesus' story. I've plenty to set up for years, eat, drink and be merry. God has given us his word. He has sent his son to die on a cross to save us from our rebellion and selfishness and sin. What a precious gift. What grace and what mercy. Do you believe this? Have you humbled yourself before God? Do you trust God and the saviour he gave us? Remember Jesus asking his disciples, when the Son of Man comes, not if but when, will he find faith on the earth? It's a question. It's a challenge for us. And the challenge is not will you have enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds, no, but will you be believing when I come back? How do I know if I have faith in God? Well, it'll show in a changed life, won't it? You'll be humbled by the glory and grace of God. There'll be repentance, a turning away from sin. There'll be a desire to honour God every day of your life. You'll be a changed person. St. Augustine, one of the church leaders, old church leaders, was something of a playboy in his early years before he became a Christian and about two years after his conversion he was in the city he used to visit and met one of his former mistresses and she came up to him and, and started being quite familiar with him and though he was being sort of polite to her he didn't respond to her as she expected and as he moved to go on she said Augustine it's me and he turned around and said I know but it's not me the point is when you come to believe God and his saviour, Jesus Christ. You go, can't go on living the way you used to live. Because you're no longer the person you used to be. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6 verse 11. This is how we don't think of ourselves. He says, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. And God will one day call each of us to account. He will search us and examine us to see whether our faith is real. Not in theory, but in practice. Well, let me finish with a question to think about. Are you alive to God? Are you living a life of faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? If not, please don't presume on God's grace. Don't leave it. Humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Don't leave it. You don't know when God will call you to account. Our culture is full of rich fools and the writing's on the wall. Are you alive to God? Have you been brought low and lifted high by the cross of Christ? If that's so, if that's you, 
Know this, to stand before your loving God in all his glory and holiness will be a day of great joy for you. And you'll hear him say those most wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us from Daniel 5 this morning, reminding us to take you seriously in a world and culture that doesn't. This is your grace to us today. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we as your people have taken you for granted or worse, ignored you and arrogantly gone our own way. Please fill us with your spirit that we may always be alive to you in Christ, seeing you clearly for who you are, the great, majestic, sovereign ruler of the universe, the church, and our lives. May we not just acknowledge you as God, but live to honour and enjoy you as your precious people. And help us, Lord, to be the writing on the wall to those around us, living letters reminding people that you are a glorious, holy God who will one day come in justice to set all things right. And that our only shelter in that day is the wonderful cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.